This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.11, All That Remains. And we're your hosts. I am the RX87-Tom, longtime Gundam fan. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob, and frankly, only on Twitter because of this podcast. She's on Twitter now. You can follow her. There are no posts. Will there ever be posts? Eventually, I will tweet. That's what it's called, right? Or is it chirps? That's Twitters. it. We're giving up the podcast. We're starting a Twitter <laughs> alternative called Chirper. A big thank you to Grant W., Jason S., EJ Riley, Hats Off to Joy Carper, and Call Me Big T for their reviews. And that's Hats Off to Joy Carper as the name? But hats off to Joy Carper anyway. <laughs> and thank you also for your comments on Reddit, Spirals101, and You Killed Church. And on Twitter to at RaidenZoop and at Sleepmon4. And on Facebook to Steven. And thank you, Steven, for having an easy name to pronounce. We love hearing from you. Feel free to reach out through any of the media we just mentioned. You can also reach us by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Beyond the Moon, Far from Earth, Side 3, Xeon. Dozens of colonies, millions of citizens, and now the four surviving zombies. As Admiral Dozel's cruiser docks at the capital, Zum City, he grumbles that they have built no new defenses in the six months since he was last home. Degwin, sovereign of Xeon and patriarch of the Zabi family, waits for him, along with Dozel's elder brother Giran and his sister Kaecilia. Garma's death weighs heavy on Degwin, and he wants time to mourn in private. But Giran argues for a state funeral, one last opportunity to put Garma's popularity and heroism to use, and rouse the Xeon people's hatred against the Federation. On Earth, Isalina, free of her father, pushes her way into Garma's quarters. When Lieutenant Dorota, one of Garma's former subordinates, commiserates with her, Isalina demands that he take her into battle so that she can get revenge on the Federation ship responsible for her beloved's death. He agrees, somehow rallying enough crew to intercept the White Base with three of the huge Gao attack carriers. But it is only the three Gao. They have no fighters and no mobile suits, only a little support from Shar in a lagoon. And perhaps he is not so useful an ally as he once seemed. While Amuro in the Gundam and Ryu in the gun cannon engage the Gao in close quarters, where the Xeon heavy weapons are useless, Shar manages to disable one of the white base's engines, forcing it to crash land in the desert below. 
The remaining refugees, desperate to survive and now convinced that they are only in danger because the white base itself is a target, try to disembark. Three push past Bright and ignore his orders to return, but they are swiftly gunned down by Shar. One Gao crashes, then a second. Amuro and Ryu retreat to defend the damaged white base, but Isolina, on the last Gao, seizes the controls and aims her plane directly at the Gundam, crashing into it and driving the Federation mobile suit back into the desert ground. Gao and Gundam both survive the impact, but the Gundam is damaged and unable to move. Amuro leaves his cockpit to begin repairs, and Isolina drags her battered body out onto the top of the Gao. She aims Dorota's pistol at Amuro, shouts that she will have vengeance, but falls before she can shoot. It's a long drop from the top of a Gao, and she does not survive this landing. Back on side three, it's decided. Girin will get his way. Kaecilia favored his plan, and Daegwyn is too tired to fight it. As for Dozel, he is preoccupied with punishing Shar for failing to protect Garma. Welcome to episode 1.11, Iselina Loves Remains. Although in Japanese, it's Koi no Ato, which could also mean after love. This is an episode that is theoretically very powerful. I think most of the episode is executed really well, but this is a classic example of a time where one crucial screw up can really just ruin the episode. But we'll talk <laughs> all about that in good time. First, I think the question that is on everyone's mind, who is that blonde guy? Who is that blonde guy? So in this episode, we get a new speaking character on the white base wearing the blue Federation uniform that Amuro wears. We've actually seen him once before in episode eight. The battlefield is a wasteland or the winds of war, depending on which translation you go with, where he appeared in the gun parry but did not have a speaking role. That, I believe, is... Job John, a white base auxiliary pilot who mostly flies the gun parry and shows up in background shots. Why do you know that? <laughs> Why do you know that for this guy who has had one line in the whole series? It's what I do. It's my superpower. It's why I'm making this podcast. Well, okay then. <laughs> We also get another new appearance in this episode, which is the Gundam's Beam Javelin. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing it can do that a Beam Saber couldn't do. So if you're wondering why the Beam Javelin appears in this episode, it's toys. It's always toys. New weapon means that they're showing off some feature of the toys that the sponsors wanted to make sure made it into the show so that all the kids would buy it. In particular, this, I believe, is meant to be... Sort of, kind of, the weird halberd slash pike that the Clover Gundam DX Gatai set includes. Now you're throwing out names of toy sets. Are you very impressed with me? Uh... <laughs> And it's our first glimpse of the other brother. We've never even heard him mentioned before. Girin. Girin Zabi. And their sister, who's been mentioned but not named, and is the very first woman of Xeon to appear. Kaecilia. Truth. So this is the, the whole clan together. Degwin, the patriarch. Then Girin, the eldest son. Dozel, Kaecilia. And the recently departed Garma. There's also another dead son, but he never gets mentioned in First Gundam, so we're going to ignore him. 
Yeah, if he never gets a mention, why bring him up at all? Spoilers! <laughs> we get a sense watching their family dynamics that among his children, Degwin is looked on as maybe getting a bit soft with age. That's a fair read. We also get the sense that everybody liked Garma. It's not clear that any of them like each other. Yes. <laughs> well, they seem very different in their personalities. Most of what we see them discuss is how to handle Garma's death politically. For Degwin, he wants to be able to mourn in private. They had high hopes for Garma, and he just wants to mourn his son away from the public eye. Dozel, who seems to be the most emotional and fiery of everyone, the most passionate in the way he carries himself and talks, is most concerned with vengeance for Garma's death and punishing Shar for not preventing it. But then you have Girin and Kaecilia, who are, both seem much colder, much more strategic, much more distanced and logical about this whole process. And while Kaecilia at least seems sad <laughs> that Garma is dead, Girin does not seem particularly moved one way or another, they also acknowledge that it having happened, they need to make what they can of it. Because Garma was popular, a big public funeral, a big show of, you know, how horrible the Federation is and the gl how glorious Zeon is and that they must fight on for Garma is the best thing that they can do in terms of the continuing war, in terms of continuing their fight. And we also get the impression in these scenes that Dagwin is tired. Dagwin, maybe it was Garma's death, maybe it was before then, but Dagwin is just done with all of this. And the leadership of Zeon, the leadership of the Zabi clan has really fallen to his children. Girin in particular, but Dozel who commands the space fleet, and Kaecilia who, question mark? Speaking of the leadership, this new opening that we get in this episode that talks a lot about Xeon and about the space colonies is the first time it's made explicit that even if they started out with the intention of gaining independence from the Federation, it's not about independence anymore. It is about taking over the Federation. It's about imposing their dictatorship, imposing the monarchy <laughs> that they've established on the rest of the Federation. But we also know that it's not perhaps going very well for them at the moment. We hear a pilot mention that there are no fighter planes left. They have, <laughs> they can send three Gao, huge attack ships after the white base, but they cannot support any of those three with fighters. And this is a pretty clear parallel to the war in the Pacific, World War II. In the last episode, we had a bit of a research piece about kamikaze attacks. And I mentioned that the organized use of kamikaze attacks came after the Japanese Navy and Air Force had suffered a string of defeats that left them outnumbered and outgunned in the air. Those engagements between different carrier fleets, where the battle was actually fought in the air by fighters and by bombers, have their parallel here in Gundam, where when the white base first descends to Earth, they're met by a massive fleet of Xeon fighters and Zaku. But after all of the battles against the white base, against the Gundam, and the losses that they suffered, they simply don't have the forces available. They have these three Gao carriers, but they're not really warships. They have weapons, sure, but they're meant to carry all of these fleets of smaller attack craft, not to engage directly the way they're being used here.
we get the briefest of glimpses into Federation politics with the message that the White Base receives from Federation HQ. They mention that there's some sort of general meeting, that no decisions have been made, and so no help is coming. Which takes us back to episode four, Escape from Luna 2, when we got the sense that the Federation was a little bit dysfunctional with no one able to take any kind of initiative without direct orders. Somewhat bogged down by bureaucracy. You know, one advantage that Xeon does have tactically is that they can unilaterally order things. And if the Federation has not empowered its generals to take control in that way, if there is a group trying to make those decisions, that would slow down the process considerably and also create a certain amount of confusion for the troops under them as to which orders and whose orders are valid. Here's a theory. So back in episode one, Tem Ray, Amro's father, the engineer who developed the Gundam, mentions briefly that there are guerrillas younger than Amaro fighting in the war already. And last episode, we discussed just how much of Earth is under Xeon control. It's possible that at this stage in the war, what is keeping the Federation in the game is actually that Federation Central Command does not have contact with all of these independent guerrilla units around the world, and that they're able to operate independently while Federation Command remains completely bogged down unable to mount any kind of serious coordinated defense. That may well be the case. Probably most important in this episode, particularly as she is the titular character of the episode, Iselina somehow manages to escape her father's mansion with or without the jet keys and make her way to Xeon Command in New York. And get into Garma's room. I would say that she talks her way in, except, and this was very striking for me, she doesn't say a word through most of her scenes early in the episode. It's implied, at least, that her love affair with Garma was not much of a secret, at least to people at the Xeon base in New York. Well, such a dashing young couple, it would have been a propaganda coup. You can assume Xeon would have been broadcasting that all over the place, or at least letting it be known. And perhaps the most striking, and I think the most significant story element of the whole episode, is that here we have Iselina, who an episode ago was talking about running away. She didn't care about Zeon, she didn't care about the Federation, she just wanted to be with Garma and would have followed him anywhere to do that, who now wants nothing more than vengeance on the people who killed Garma. And all she knows that that means is this Federation ship, these Federation mobile suits. We have no reason to think she has any experience at this whatever, but she wants on that ship that's going after the white base. She wants to be there personally, and she's willing to die for it. And you see how shocked everyone is when she, after the gal that she's on is damaged and the pilot injured, she takes control and she pulls a Garma. She aims the gal at the Gundam, at the mobile suit, and they can't believe it. And it's all of this lead up. It's all of her anger and her desire for vengeance leading up to this and the lengths she's willing to go to to get it that for me made her last scene so painfully dumb. Just absolutely disappointing. 
this is not some wilting flower. This is a woman who has basically decided to die for vengeance because the love of her life is gone, who just took control of a giant attack ship and crashed it and thought she was going to die. It'd be one thing if she couldn't fire the gun at Amuro. It'd be one thing if faced with like a gun in her hand and a human person, she couldn't bring herself to fire. But to have her just kind of like faint and fall off the side of the gal felt really out of character and stupid. And that fall is really poorly animated. Yeah, I get it. You don't want to show her like smashing to bits on the ground. Then don't show her landing at all. The way they show her like softly, like her head and her arms and then the rest of her body almost float down to land on the ground is just bad. I have a theory that in the original draft, she's supposed to be shot. That would make more sense. I actually asked Tom when we were watching the episode because of the way that she like she kind of like gasps while she's holding the gun and she fires it but up into the air and then she collapses and I'm like oh did she get shot? Did somebody shoot her? In the episode no. No one shoots her. She just falls. But my theory is that in the original draft she was supposed to be shot by somebody to fall because she was shot. That that would make a lot more sense. And that the decision was ultimately made not to have any of our good guy characters kill someone who is sort of kind of a civilian at this point in the show. Well, and a beautiful woman who we sympathize with a lot. The other reason that she is so important is she establishes for us this idea of the cycle of vengeance that war creates which has been talked about a lot, but that it almost doesn't matter who starts it. There's so much bad blood going back and forth that you have this continuous desire for vengeance on both sides. But this is the first time that Amuro is confronted with the idea that because of things he's done or people he's killed, there are people out there who hate him and who want vengeance on him. His line when he hears Isolina declare that she's seeking vengeance is vengeance on me? Like he can't believe that anyone would see vengeance against him. After all, he's been seeking vengeance all this whole time. Not to mention a lot of his breakdown and a lot of his ill feeling previously has had to do with the stress on himself and the pressure of having people to protect. He has not talked about, perhaps has not even admitted to himself, whether or not the people he's killed weigh on him. And now he's being confronted with it very directly. You killed Garma, therefore I'm here to kill you. And we can see that this cycle of vengeance is not just soldiers. You know, it takes civilians who had no particular stake in what was happening and suddenly turns them into people willing to die for the cause. And this is a counterpoint to the mother and child we saw several episodes back. And she talks about how everyone Amuro kills leaves behind widows, leaves behind orphans. There was no indication that she wanted to seek vengeance for the death of her husband. But who knows, in a generation, her son, Coley, might grow up and try to seek vengeance. I know that scene where Isolina is in Garma's old room and she's staring at the picture of him is meant to be very emotional and powerful and show us her sorrow. But what I couldn't get over is just thinking about the fact that Garma had a giant picture of himself in his own office. Oh, yeah. What? (laughs) What kind of jerk has a... (laughs) Seriously, this portrait is as tall as a human person and it's just a... 
a chested up portrait of him. So his face is almost the, the height of a human person. I have a theory that there is a secret button under Garma's desk. And if he presses it, that painting rotates and instead reveals a nude portrait of Shar. Speaking of Shar, Shar, up until now, his plans have seemed pretty understandable to us, the audience. We know enough of what he's doing that we can kind of figure out what his end game is, what his goals are, what he's trying to achieve. This episode, he starts to lose me. First, we have him saying that he can't lose, even if he takes responsibility for Garma's death, which we hear Degwin say to Dozel, demote Shar. Like, as for Shar, punish him by demoting him. Which does not seem all that bad, considering he's partially responsible for the death of one of the princes of Zeon. Though as far as they know, he's only responsible for failing to adequately protect Garma. Sure, it feels a bit slap on the wrist rather than a very serious punishment. But it's unclear why that makes no nevermind to Shar. Well, or perhaps Shar doesn't even expect that much. Perhaps Shar thinks that he's really going to get away with it scot-free. And then at the end, Shar mentions to his co-pilot that they're going to give an excuse as to why he did not go out in Azaku. Why they were out in a... Was it a dump? I think it was a lagoon. Lagoon? I feel like at one point, maybe you got mixed up and called it a dump, and I have thought of them as dumps ever since, and it's really messing me up. And I'm but... sorry for that. <laughs> Alright, a lagoon? A legume? <laughs> a flying bean. But yeah, that, that they have to have a, a reason, quote unquote, why he didn't go out in the Zaku. And then that creepy smile, Dren smiles at him creepily, and then Shar smiles back creepily. Right. And suddenly we wonder, well, why didn't he go out in the Zaku? We know when he went out without his ship after they landed, he was looking at the white base saying there must be an easy way to get on there because he wants to capture it. He doesn't want to destroy it. He wants to take the white base more or less intact. He did not seem particularly concerned with what happened or didn't happen to the Gundam. He had hoped that Iselina would take the Gundam out, but he doesn't seem particularly bothered when she doesn't manage it. So I'm starting to wonder, what is the rest of the plan? So I think in this episode, Shar's plan is that if he can take the white base, then he'll be absolved of whatever role he had in Garma's death. If he can take the white base, that'll be enough. Lots of people <laughs> staking their futures on the white base. Yeah. It's not worked out for any of them yet. Nope. It's a little late in the game for a format change, but this episode does introduce some new elements to the format, one of which Nina mentioned already, which is the narration at the beginning of the episode, explaining to us the nature of the Xeon side three colonies, explaining to us that Admiral Dozel is returning from the front, things like that, which we haven't had before. We also finish the episode on what appears to be a painted freeze frame, which is new. And given the era in which this happened, it's probably literally a painted frame. It looked very comic book-esque to me. It felt like an old school sci-fi comic, but very different from any of the art style we've seen so far in the show. Something completely new and very striking. I feel like such a bad person, but we are finally rid of the refugees. I have in my notes, literally <laughs> the phrase, we might finally be rid of the refugees. <laughs> 
Great minds, Tom. Great minds. In fairness to them, they are in a uniquely terrible situation. Unlike all of the young people helping out on the bridge or in more sort of active combat situations, most of the refugees are trapped in the ship in somewhat claustrophobic surroundings with not enough food and nothing to do but contemplate the constant danger they are in. That feeling of helplessness and of being trapped on the base would make anybody a little crazy. They are also not entirely wrong <laughs> when they say, this has nothing to do with us. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, none of this was their choice. They got roped into it because the Gundam was being built on the side that they lived on, which was not a thing that most of them would have had any influence over. It would have just happened. Their home was destroyed because of it. They had to flee on the white base because there was no other way to flee. And then the white base became a target. Again, not something they had any control over. In fact, they've had no control over anything since they left Side 7. And I think that's part of why they're so desperate to get off the white base. As you mentioned, they're unable to do anything. They're not part of participating in defending the white base. So when they get the opportunity to bolt, to do literally anything under their own power, even if it's something as stupid as running out into a desert, they take the opportunity. Doing something, even if it's the wrong thing, can be very tempting when you've been outside of your own control for so long. I do think it's deeply naive of them to think that they can run off into the desert and be fine, and to think that somehow they're going to find a place where the war won't touch them, particularly here in areas that are still largely under Xeon control. Mind you, there were people in Xeon-controlled New York who seemed to be doing okay. Maybe they think, you know, whoever's in charge is as good as the next. But you wouldn't want to be caught in the middle. What you don't want to be is in the zones where the fighting is happening. And those refugees who run out of the white base do get gunned down almost immediately by Shar. And it seems by the end of the episode that Bright has given up on trying to make them stay, particularly with the promised Federation support coming soonish. I'm gonna miss the orphans. I really hope they're not staying on the white base. Um. Damn it! All right, now I'm even more mad at the refugees. None of them could take those orphan kids. They're just going to leave those. Oh, we want off the white base, but uh, I guess those kids can stay here. <laughs> That's basically their attitude for the kids from Amuro on down. I mean, any kid who doesn't have a grown up, basically. Yep. All the orphans. All of the orphans of all ages. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. They're basically all orphans. Yeah. Yeah. Did that only just hit you? I feel like that hit me a couple of episodes ago where the orphans are looking after the baby. And then the baby's mom comes and they're like, oh, the baby's not an orphan. Oh, but Fra and all those little kids are. Right. Well, but I'm thinking of, I mean, Amuro's not an orphan. We know he has a mother. She's alive. Somewhere. Yeah. Mm. Kai and Hayato? Probably orphans. Yeah. Question mark. Bright? Question mark. Probably not. If his family was on Earth. I mean, debatable, but... Half, half the total human population is dead. <sighs> Sela. Mirai. With Mirai, who knows? Yeah, we know her family is famous, but we don't know anything about their current status. Do you want to talk at all about the combat? It was interesting, but I don't know if it's interesting enough to talk about. It was kind of weird. We have the Gundam and the gun cannon jumping off the white base onto a Gao and then jumping onto another Gao. 
See, I actually found that all very clever because think about how difficult it is for the other gal to support in any way because if they shoot at the Gundam, which is a much smaller target, they're much more likely to just hit the gal, which, which happens. Spoiler alert, happens. You're a very small target against a very large target. They're shooting. They can't just strafe across and hope they hit you. They have to really aim and really hit you or they're doing more harm than good. This is an episode where the Xeon forces just seem so totally ineffective. Well, like you said, they're using all they have left for its unintended purpose. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing yet again that they've yet to come up with an answer to the Gundam. The closest thing they have is Char, and Char decided not to take out Azaku this time. He was perhaps hoping to take the white base without engaging with the Gundam and thought the best way to do that would be to be in the Logan rather than in his Zaku. And he is quite effective. He's able to destroy one of the white base's engines, causing it to crash land. Under other circumstances, that would have been a very effective blow. Yeah, they mention the various crew of the white base touch on the fact that the white base is remarkably sturdy. <laughs> it survived quite well, despite losing an engine and having to crash land. Mirai credits a lot of that with the white base's own systems and handling, although Bright tells her she's being too modest, but doesn't take them long to get it to a point where they can fly it again. They make a point of showing in quite graphic detail the crashes of the two gal that are damaged and then crash. When they crash, there's a huge explosion and a massive burst of light. And I assume this is a reference to their nuclear reactors and the way in which a nuclear reactor might explode on mm -hmm. such a ship. It looks, they don't have a mushroom cloud, but they do the bright white expanding flash. I think within this episode, those are also meant to set up the real horror that Amuro and Ryu must have felt when they saw the white base descend into the clouds. Well, and the terror of seeing one of those gal come flying straight at you. They are not expecting it. It was one thing when Garma did it because that ship was so badly damaged it was not going to fly away. There's no indication the ship Iselina's on couldn't fly away with a good enough pilot. Iselina's not that. She can just kind of aim it. Mm -hmm. But they are shocked and probably expecting that it will lead to a similar explosion. An explosion the Gundam probably could not survive. Instead, it sort of shoves the Gundam across the desert. And it does disable the Gundam. It does more damage to the Gundam than we have seen happen at any other point in the series so far. In terms of incapacitating it, we've seen some, some physical damage done with some weapons cutting through the shield. We get to see the shield start melting this time. That poor shield. We also see the javelin used almost like a can opener, <laughs> cutting open one of the gal, cutting it in half, actually, before Amuro jumps down. It is powerful. Seeing it in action, I would like a toy of that. So for Tom, Iselina's suicidal attack and, frankly, the whole story of her love affair with Garma was reminiscent of love suicides in classical Japanese fiction. Love suicides, which is the English translation of the Japanese term shinju, can actually refer to many types of group suicide, usually a pair of lovers, but also parents and children or even whole families. 
The most famous examples in literature are two bunraku, or puppet theater plays, by Chikamatsu Monzaemon, Shinju Ten no Amijima, The Love Suicides at Amijima, and Sonezaki Shinju, The Love Suicides at Sonezaki. Both plays date to the early 1700s. While both are based on real events, their popularity is also credited with increasing the number of love suicides at the time of their release, and Chikamatsu experienced some government censorship as a result. In these stories, characters are driven to suicide by conflict between giri, their duties, honor, and social obligations, and ninjo, human feelings and passions. In Sonazaki Shinju, for example, a young merchant resists his uncle's attempt to arrange a marriage for him because he's in love with a courtesan, even though the marriage would be advantageous, and he has an almost filial obligation to the uncle who raised him. One of our sources, an article by Stephen Hine, sees love suicides as a rejection of the whole giri-ninjo dichotomy, a rebellious act by individuals who feel helpless or powerless. He points to the same play, but to the other half of events. The young lover is left destitute and facing exile after he's fired by his uncle and swindled by someone he thought was a friend. Hine points to the fact that love suicides, at least in fiction, were mostly committed by ordinary people, with little or no money, rank, or social power, and describes them as taking the anguish and despair of living in an oppressive society and creating an opportunity for hope. The important thing to remember is that in Japanese culture at the time, suicide is a morally neutral act. What matters is why you do it. And how. Pure Land Buddhism, a sect that was very popular in the Tokugawa period, has numerous stories about individuals who commit suicide with a sense of peace, holding the Nembutsu, the name and figure of the Amida Buddha, in their hearts. One source on Buddhist views of suicide and euthanasia described the common tradition of tying one end of a rope around your waist and leaving the other end with your retainer, or your horse, then throwing yourself into the river, and if you could retain your common composure, you committed a noble suicide by drowning, and if you couldn't retain your common composure, your retainer could reel you back in before you drowned ignominiously. Do the sources explain how your horse was expected to know whether or not you lost composure? I am given to understand at that point you're reeling yourself back in, but uh, not clear. I prefer to imagine that these horses were very sensitive. In Shinju plays, lovers' last moments are typically characterized by calm acceptance or even hopefulness, which leads to my final point. In Pureland Buddhism of Japan, certain interpersonal bonds could continue through the cycle of rebirth. Parents and children, husbands and wives, or lovers believed they would still be connected in their next life. I have to do a tiny disclaimer on this one. I couldn't find a source for this. It's something I remember reading in several plays. However, I don't know the Japanese term for it, which made it very difficult to search for, and I couldn't find any kind of a, a proper source explaining this idea or documenting it in any way. I remember it too from a bunch of different places, including some anime and some plays and literature that I read way back in college. So this is something we're both really certain is a thing, but we couldn't find good sources on it. We're going to keep looking though. If you happen to know for some reason what this idea is called in Japanese, please let us know. It would make our research much easier. One specific example Tom mentioned was the movie Tokyo Godfathers, actually. And at the end, 
spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Tokyo Godfathers, <laughs> it's a great movie. Go watch it. Skip, Skip the next like, minute of this <laughs> podcast. But at the end of Tokyo Godfathers, if you remember, there is a woman with a babe with her baby. She's gone a little mad. Earlier in the movie, she abandoned the baby. Now she's reclaimed it. And she decides she's going to commit suicide. Her husband is down on the ground. She's trying to jump off of a building. Her husband is down on the ground and he's yelling, don't do it. We'll start a new life together. We'll go somewhere and we'll be happy. And she has this moment where she thinks, yes, we will start a new life together in the next life. And then she jumps. I won't spoil how it turns out. (laughs) So Shinju is one type of ritual suicide. There are a couple of others that show up in Japanese culture. One is seppuku, which is ritual suicide by the samurai class as an honorable alternative to being killed by someone else or living a life of shame. Samurai were supposed to embrace the knowledge that they might die at any moment. There were also cases of retainers or disciples committing suicide after the death of their master. And there are actually two approaches to that. One is that you are supposed to commit suicide before your master dies so that you may go ahead and prepare the way for him. And the other is that after your master has died, you commit suicide so that you can continue to serve him in the next life or the next world. I bring up these other types of ritual suicide because I'm not sure that Shinju is a good fit for what happens with Garma and Iselina here. At its core, Shinju is about staying together. Garma doesn't really have that in mind. (laughs) A Shinju is committed by two people together Mm. or more. Garma doesn't believe he's going to his death until the very end when he's trying to sort of make the best of the fact that his ship is going down. It's possible that Garma in that moment could have tried to escape Pod his way out. But the way the scene is set up, we're given to understand that he knows he's going down. He's trying to take out the other guys with him. He didn't set out to suicide. There were a lot of forces keeping him and Iselina apart, but they didn't make a suicide pact over it. Depending on the thoughts going through Garma's head, what he does could be seen more like seppuku. He doesn't want to risk being captured alive, and so he doesn't try to escape. And then we get to Iselina, after all of this has already happened. Iselina's desire to be on the ship that's going to take vengeance for Garma does feel suicidal. The whole mission, in a lot of ways, the three gal with no supports, the fact that she insists on being there in person, does feel like a suicide run. Shinju, in its purest form, may not have been what Iselina had in mind when she left New York. But based on what she says, we know she was thinking about vengeance, or in Japanese, kataki. Revenge is among the oldest and the most primal and the most immediately understandable of all of the human motivations. Someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back. This is older than law, older than politics, it's probably older than language. The desire for revenge is so intrinsic to us that entire globe-spanning religions are built around the idea that forgiving someone who has wronged you is an act so outside of the human experience as to be an act of divinity itself. When Christ tells his followers to turn the other cheek, he's denying the revenge impulse. And that's so unbelievable as to have become the cornerstone of Christianity. Revelatory. Forgiveness? (laughs) What? And Buddhism, too, is based on a very similar principle. 
older religions, ones that saw their gods as more recognizably human but bigger, are full of tales of the gods exacting vengeance on each other and the hapless mortals who get in their way. The oldest surviving drama in the world, Aeschylus's The Persians, has the Greek gods getting revenge on Persian Emperor Xerxes, he of 300 fame, for his hubris in building a bridge over the Hellespont. The oldest surviving written records of Japanese history and myth recount the story of how the goddess Izanami died giving birth to the fire god Kagutsuchi, and how Izanagi, husband to Izanami and father to Kagutsuchi, immediately cut off his newborn son's head in revenge. Wow. What? Yep. <clears throat> okay then. In a development that should surprise no one, the revenge stories came first, but the stories about cycles of revenge came almost immediately afterwards. The Oresteia, first performed 14 years after the Persians in 458 BCE, also written by Aeschylus, is a trilogy of tragedies all about struggling to break free from an endless cycle of revenge. In the Oresteia, King Agamemnon, he of Trojan war fame, returns home, only to be murdered by his wife Clytemnestra and Aegisthus, who is both the queen's lover and the king's cousin. But Aegisthus, we learn, wanted revenge because Agamemnon stole the throne from his father, Thyestes, who got the throne by having Aegisthus kill Agamemnon's father, Atreus, which was revenge for when <laughs> Atreus tricked Thyestes in eating two of his own sons. What? But that in turn was revenge for Thyestes sleeping with Atreus's wife. Greeks, yo. We could go on all day. What's important is that Orestes and Electra, children of King Agamemnon and Queen Clytemnestra, avenge their father by killing their mother and her lover. For this one act that is both the ultimate in filial piety and sacrilege, Orestes is pursued by the Eumenides, or in English, the Furies, literal embodiments of vengeance. They chase him all the way to Athens, where the gods help to arrange the first ever trial by jury, where Orestes is acquitted. Justice, through divinely sanctioned law, replaces vengeance and breaks the cycle of revenge. And it was never a problem again, right? One quick digression. I've been describing the Greek plays The Persians and The Oresteia as being the oldest surviving works of drama in the world, and most scholarly sources I reviewed do identify them as such. There is a Sanskrit theater tradition from the area that is now India that, depending on how you define drama and surviving, and how broadly you read references in ancient sources, may have developed anywhere from three centuries after the Oresteia to nine centuries before it. There seems to be a lot of nationalist anatomy measuring around the question of who exactly was first, and plenty of seemingly legitimate sources are tossing out radically different answers. So I will just say that there is also a very ancient dramatical tradition in Sanskrit, possibly the most ancient. They probably wrote a lot of plays about revenge too. <laughs> anatomy measuring. I promise we are going to talk about Gundam and revenge in Japan soon. Sticking to the Western tradition for one more minute, Romeo and Juliet, probably the single best-known play in the English canon, is also about bringing a cycle of revenge to an end. The two families, Montagues and Capulets, are not just enemies. They have been feuding so bitterly and for so long that no one can remember the original reason for the dispute. The cycle only ends when an entire generation of young people from both houses are dead from their vendetta. We talked last time about how Garma and Iselina were playing out a Romeo and Juliet kind of story, and here Iselina brings it to its conclusion. Garma is dead, and Iselina, like Juliet, follows her beloved into death. They just use kamikaze gao instead of poison. 
And the word Isolini uses for her vengeance is kataki. It's a word with a long and storied tradition in Japanese literature and history, often translated as blood revenge. Kataki represents a very particular form of revenge, specifically killing someone as revenge for the murder of a loved one. It developed during the Nara, Heian, and Edo periods, so from at least as early as 700 CE to 1873, when the Meiji government finally and abruptly outlawed the practice. The very first reference to it comes from the Nihon Shoki, the second oldest surviving work on Japanese history and myth, in the form of a debate between an emperor and one of his advisors about whether it is correct for him to seek revenge against the man responsible for his father's death. It was framed and justified through explicitly Confucian and Neo-Confucian principles that also limited its scope. Only people in certain special relationships to the murdered person could seek proper kataki. A son could avenge his father, a younger brother could avenge his older, a nephew could avenge his uncle, but not a father his son, nor an older brother his younger, nor an uncle his nephew. In theory, though it was rare, a retainer could avenge his lord, who in feudal Neo-Confucianism stood in a sort of similar position to that occupied by the father in classical Confucianism. Speaking of, another Chikamatsu Monzaemon play that is particularly famous is the Chushingura, which deals with the case of 47 samurai who are rendered ronin, or masterless. The 47 then go on to take vengeance on those who murdered their master and then commit seppuku. It's a really exciting play, though. What did Chikamatsu Monzaemon have about suicide? I will say Chikamatsu Monzaemon was of the samurai class for most of his young life. That eventually ended when his father lost his position, but he would have been raised as that class of people and surrounded by that kind of philosophy. And we'll actually in a minute be talking about debates within the samurai intelligentsia about the proper way to seek revenge and commit suicide. We don't have a ton of evidence for what kataki looked like in the early years, but that changes with the Tokugawa shogunate. In an early and, frankly, amazing example of Japanese bureaucratism, the Tokugawa government institutionalized kataki. If a person believed that they had a claim for kataki, they could apply to their local feudal lord for permission... <laughs> That's right. They would apply to their local feudal lord for permission to pursue revenge by submitting their name, the names of anyone who would be assisting them, the circumstances resulting in their claim for revenge, and their relationship to the deceased person. If approved, they were legally entitled to hunt down and attempt to kill the offender. But if the offender left that feudal domain, the would-be avenger was then required to apply to the central government, which could authorize kataki in any part of the country, excluding the emperor's presence and certain temples. No, I'm thinking it's like state and federal. Like you could you could get a state permit for Kataki, but then if they cross state lines, you needed a federal permit. Once approved by the central government, the Avenger would be recorded in the official central registry of vendettas. <laughs> I love the idea of a book full of vendettas sitting in a government office. Probably books and books full of vendettas. I wonder if they categorized them alphabetically by the name of the Avenger or the name of the offending party, or by category, like what exactly the person had done that warranted vengeance? I do not know, but I would love to find out. <laughs> if the Avengers succeeded in their quest for vengeance, they would then be required to report that success to the local authorities, who would check it against the central register and confirm that it was a valid revenge. 
Alternatively, if the target died naturally or by some other cause, that would also need to be recorded and would technically count as a successfully completed vendetta. And a person could receive promotions and rewards for successfully completing an honorable vendetta. Now it feels like quest turn in in a game. Real life more like video games than any of us thought. There were some limitations. To borrow a saying from modern law, Kataki under the Tokugawa government followed a one bite at the apple principle. If the target managed to kill the authorized avenger, no second vengeance would be authorized. It also prohibited secondary vengeance. The target's own children or younger brothers would not be allowed to pursue retaliatory Kataki against the avengers. Thus, the law worked to prevent the development of any long-running blood feuds. And interestingly, once a person embarked on Kataki, there was no going home until either they killed the target or confirmed his death. If you gave up, you couldn't go back to your old life. And many people who found themselves in that situation ended up becoming itinerant monks or running away to far-flung provinces where no one knew who they were. Strong disincentive to pursue it unless you're very confident you're going to be able to pull it off. Exactly. Surprisingly, I was surprised, Kataki was not restricted to the samurai class. People from any class could get permission to pursue revenge, and toward the later years of the Tokugawa shogunate, the balance actually shifted towards commoners quite significantly. There are some amazingly dramatic stories about common folk secretly training at sword fighting for years in order to revenge themselves against some samurai, but more of that in a minute. There are three special, rare categories of kataki that I want to touch on because while they are absolutely outside the mainstream, they did happen, and they provide us with our best comparisons to this episode of Gundam. Because yes, we are actually still talking about Gundam. <laughs> the first two have to do with Iselina. And the third one actually has to do with Lieutenant Dorota. While it was standard practice for a deceased man to be avenged by his son, nephew, or younger brother, it did sometimes happen that he was avenged by his lover. Remember a few episodes back when we talked about nanshoku, the samurai tradition of homosexual love? There are numerous stories from the literature surrounding that tradition of a younger partner avenging the death of his older lover. Now those stories tend to also end with the avenger dead too, probably because of cross-pollination with the love suicides tradition that Nina mentioned earlier. Or even the master disciple suicides. Potentially, but given the erotic nature of these stories mm. and the highly romanticized nature of their dual deaths and the suggestion of finding love again in the next life, I think mm. it's more connected to the love suicides part. However, I have read some very compelling arguments that the relationship between Lord and Retainer also had homoerotic overtones. And so the idea of samurai committing suicide in order to continue serving their liege lord may have been closer to love suicide than we would normally think. So these were normally men avenging the deaths of their lovers. But that need not always be the case because, though it was rare, women could pursue Kataki too. If a man died without any sons or younger brothers authorized to avenge him, his wife or daughter could apply for and receive permission to seek Kataki. Sources for this in English are scanty, but everyone discussing Kataki agrees on it. And I did find one story, which was based on a real historical event from the 1720s that eventually got turned into various plays and puppet shows because of how dramatic it was. A common farmer was murdered by a samurai and left behind only two daughters. The sisters left their farm and ended up taking service as maids in the household of a retainer to the daimyo of Sendai. While they served, they watched the samurai training at sword fighting. After dark, they practiced with each other, 
secret. But their master discovered this, and hearing their story, he began to give them proper lessons, and convinced his master, the daimyo, to arrange a contest between the sisters and their target. He fought alone, and they took turns, wearing him down and eventually killing him. Now I want to read that play. So the most famous of these revenge stories is Soga Monogatari, which has been turned into like a million different plays and stories, and was so popular that other playwrights would stick the names of the Soga brothers into their plays or include them as cameo characters in order to increase the popularity of totally unrelated plays. <laughs> and this play with the two women has its own title, but everyone just calls it the Soga women play. <laughs> Garma had no younger siblings, and no children, which means Isolina is the person with the best claim to avenge him, but not the only person. In Neo-Confucian feudalism, the bond between a lord and his retainers is on the same level with the bonds of family or romantic love. Garma's subordinates, especially any who were close to him, would have also had the duty and the right to avenge his death. So when Isolina calls on Dorota to aid her revenge against the White Base, and when he rallies the crews of three Gao to join their mission, they are abnegating their duty as soldiers of Xeon, abandoning their posts, stealing equipment. But they are fulfilling their samurai duty as Garma's retainers. Yamamoto Tsunetomo, a Bushido theorist who in the early 1700s wrote the Hagakure Treatise on Samurai Duty, highlighted a crucial difference between functional revenge and symbolic revenge. And what I mean by that is the difference between restoring your honor by killing your enemy using any means necessary versus restoring your honor by trying and failing to do so in the most honorable way possible. It was his position that a samurai who had cause for revenge must immediately attack his enemy without regard for his own life, without regard for the likelihood of success. Taking no steps to prepare, things like planning and waiting for the right moment were inherently dishonorable even when they were necessary to succeed in the revenge. Like I mentioned earlier, this is also from the Hagakure, but the idea that you walk with death, right? You could die at any moment. That was your life. You were supposed to have fully embraced and accepted that. And taking time to plan, taking time to wait for a good moment, sort of indicates that you haven't, right? You're like trying to find a survivable way through this instead of just going for it. And even if you're prepared to die in order to succeed, that emphasis on success means that you're putting value on the life of the person you're trying to kill. When in fact, as a proper samurai, as a proper Buddhist, you should accept that that life has no value whatsoever. Whether they live or die is meaningless, just as whether you live or die is meaningless. So it is better to go now, fail and die, rather than tolerate even another day of shame. This seems to be the position that Iselina takes, and it seems true for Dorota and the other Xeon soldiers. Did any of them really think that they were going to bring down the white base after so many stronger forces had failed? They were expecting to fail and ready to die. You know, interestingly, Dorota's name actually means failure in Spanish. Oh, derrota. Dorota. Derrota? Yeah, derrota. <laughs> it sounds like we're saying the same thing. <laughs> Tom can't roll his R's. Derrota. De derrota. Derrota? Dorada. You're El hopeless. El Dorado? <laughs> There's speculation that this 
obsession with dramatic, tragic love actually has its roots in the fact that you have this Bushido code that is all about accepting death. You have the medieval period, which is constant warfare for everyone, pretty much. And then all of a sudden, the Tokugawa shogunate begins, and you have a period of relative peace and stability. But you have generations of people, you have an entire populace that has this warrior outlook. And that has to get channeled somewhere else, that has to get channeled into other things. And that it seems in society to have been channeled into these very intense, tragic love stories and love affairs. In a similar way, some of the sources I read posited that for the samurai class, who continued to exist and enjoy social privileges throughout the Tokugawa period, even when their role as warriors was no longer necessary, these quests for revenge were so celebrated because they gave the samurai something to do. <laughs> they gave them a purpose and a way to express their bushido. That makes sense. The source that I read on Buddhist attitudes about suicide and euthanasia also points out death is not an ending. It's a continuation. Though this is a little bit weird. I think it's a particularly Japanese syncretic view of Buddhism where the cycle of reincarnation becomes not something to be avoided, not something that everyone is trying to rise above in classical pure Buddhism, but rather just part of life, something to be embraced, something to take advantage of. And these human connections to other people, things like romantic love, connections that in Buddhist theory you're supposed to rise above and separate yourself from and deny, are actually things to be embraced and integrated into this idea of reincarnation in another life and keeping these bonds. Although somewhat contradictorily, you're not supposed to, in the cases of love suicides or suicides period, you're not supposed to be running away from or pursuing anything, right? It's not about getting away from a bad situation. It's not about pursuing a possible paradise. When you actually die, you're supposed to be completely at peace and full of acceptance. Supposedly, if you died with these strong desires... That was actually counterproductive. That was bad. <laughs> I strongly suspect that was a theory that was never put into practice. Yeah, it does seem strongly contradictory. I mean, anybody who would be committing suicide has a reason. <laughs> and anyone who's committing a love suicide specifically has something they're trying to get away from, a life that prevents them from being with this person they love, and something they're trying to get to, a life with this person they love. So they're both fleeing something and pursuing something simultaneously. And those are the motivations for their action. It's hard to imagine how they could give that up just for the moment during which they actually commit suicide. I mean, it's possible that the ritual chanting, Nama Amida Butsu, like the ritual chanting that they were supposed to do was meant to help with that. I am not a Buddhist scholar. And the tricky thing about trying to research Buddhism with the resources that we have access to is that most of what you get is contemporary sources. There are a lot of practicing Buddhists in the world of all different sects. And most of what you find is going to be about contemporary Buddhist teaching or message boards where people are discussing things or, you know, clickbaity articles where people apply Buddhist principles to whatever hot topic they want to write about. Especially when you're searching something like suicide. <laughs> or love or relationships.
Two households of slightly different dignity, in bombed-out New York where we lay our scene. From recent grudge break to new mutiny, from forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. A glooming peace this morning with it brings, go hence to have more talk of these sad things. For never was a story of more woe than this of Iselina and her Garmio. <laughs> New York? Thanks to some bad English that was written on a map in the background, New York City in Gundamverse is New York. I wonder if they were trying to capture the accent. New York. (laughs) New York. More or less. New York. Scenic New York City. Next time on episode 1.12, Into the Storm. Blinded by the light again! Why is everyone touching? A shocking tentacle experience. No seriously, literal space Nazis. Going to bars to pick up shars. One Zaku, two Zaku, red Zaku, blue Zaku. This is no Zaku, no Zaku. Mirai pilots a different ship. Oh right, they're from space. And a portrait of Garma to make the one in his office look restrained. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling that three dogs is a pack, three crows is a murder, and three gow is a sacrifice on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Wink, wink. (laughs) We'll save the other bits for MSB After Dark. You need a towel or something. Yeah. Or sleeves. (laughs) You don't realize why that's such a funny thing in this context, but there's a faction later on in Gundam that's going to be called the Sleeves. What? Yep. Don't. It's dumb. Don't ask. (laughs) I mean, it's very smart and clever and everything in Gundam is great. We'll get there eventually. So, so eventually. 
recap that I haven't written yet will go here. Mm-hmm. And how broadly you read references in ancient source texts. In ancient source texts. Texts. Ancient source texts. Text is a terrible word to have to read mm-hmm. on mic. Texts. Ugh. Texts. Or perhaps some might even argue bogged down by democracy. Yeah, we got that. Yamamoto Tsunetomo, a Buddhist theor- Buddhist. Buddhist. <laughs> Yamamoto Tsunetomo, a Bu- I keep wanting to say Buddhist, but I'm supposed to say Bushido. Oh, whoops. <laughs> I like Buddhist, though. Buddhist. <laughs> he, was, he was a bit Buddhist, yeah. Bossa Nova. <laughs> Casa Nova. <laughs>